Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday morning, and let me take a look at the parsha. Very uh, interesting, historically complicated and interesting parsha. Uh, the beginning of it in Bihar. Uh, today's talk is being sponsored by our good friend and supporter, uh, Gluck Plumbing, Abe Gluck in Lakewood. Uh, very kind of him. And uh, hope later on this week to be able to do something about Log Bomer. But first, as I said before, <coughs> we all know the first Rashi in Bihar, but it's really historically, from the historical perspective, which is usually mine, it's a very fascinating because uh, it lays out complicated scenarios for what we call the writing of the Chumash. <coughs> uh, let me explain. You know, there's a there's a famous Rashi at the beginning that's quoted all the time, which is really Taurus Kohanim, and this ties in Mamish with uh, Dubbs V. Hoffman, stuff that I've, excuse me, I've been talking about, and with the Carbon Aaron, whose name I mentioned the other day. Everybody, I think, from school is familiar with what Rashi says, you know, Mayan Shemitah to Harsini, why is it only say over here? Uh, 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 what about the others? My Indian Shmita Laharsini, how Kolamitz is never Basinai, and everything Basinai. Elamashmita never calls so predicted Gummy Sinai. I'm reading straight from the Torah's corner because that's what Rashi quotes the Sifra. Mashmita never calls so predicted just like by Shmita, all the rules, the Kolam and the Dikdukim, those all the the technical details all come from Harsini, they don't come from later. Of Kolam never calls him Basinai. Same applies with the other Tariq misses. Which of course can't be true. You say no, this is as a flat statement. And um moreover, uh, uh oh, hold on for a second. Moreover, um this uh, statement in that uh, called uh, all the clawless and, and protest never seen and all the rest of it represents one school of thought. The Rabbi Kiva is opposed to Rabbi Shmuel. When I get to finish uh, the Dovsi Hoffman thing, I hope. I'll explain that one of the one of his big it's not only his theories is that the two schools of thought when it comes to Medish Halacha and the, the influential ones in the period when this stuff was all put together and when it's the Rabbi Kiva on the one hand versus Rabbi Shmuel on the other. And so um and the Malbim also, you know, if you look, they all say the same thing. That this first uh, Rashi or this first statement in the uh, Torah's Torah's which is a, a Tanitic Midrash, let me read from a Hoffman Zudaito Shrabi Kiva. Okay? That's the opinion of Rabbi Kiv that all this stuff was said at the same time. Luumazo, Sober Rabbi Shmuel, however, the school of Rabbi Shmuel says, Klolos Nemer Bissino, Protest Ba'omoid. So it's not true that everything was said upstairs in Har Sinai. A lot of the stuff, like in Vayikra, whatever was said in the Olmoid, downstairs, which wasn't on top of Har Sinai. Lefisa, Achok Shmita, Yotzim, and Klol. So if that's the case, Shmita is unusual, Shagam Protosel Nemer Bissinai. Okay? And that's why you got to explain it and all the rest of it. So, um, when I say it's not true, no, that's one opinion. But there are other opinions having to do with how we understand the actual transmission of the Torah itself uh, was done. Uh, here, I'll read you from the Malbim, make it a little more clear. Bizwachim, this is the Malbim on the 
Sifra on the Torah's cunning, because that's what the Malbim is. Now, this is the first passing in our parsha. He named his Vachim Pliger Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Kiva, is a Machlokis and the more is Vachim on Kuv Tesvav. Shrabi Shmuel is really the Klolos Namru Besinai, Uprotes Balmoid. That's the opinion of Rabbi Shmuel. Which, by the way, is more logical, makes more sense according to the text of the Chumash. That sounds like some stuff was said like in Shmos or in Harsine, upstairs on the mountain. The other stuff was said elsewhere in the, in the, in the Mishkan. Rabbi Kiva Sreelei, however, Rabbi Kiva, who's always the more mystical, says, the clothes who brought this number Sinai, the whole thing was said in Harsinai. So all the stuff you find in, uh, I don't know, in Vayik or whatever is really said in Shmos. The only thing is, Nishnu, um, Baal it was repeated. So when you see Vayikra, it's, it's like a repetition. It's not the first time it's happening. Like that, Rosham Moshe does mean the first time. Uh, and then third, not only I'm not done. And Nishtal Shabbat If you find it in in, in um, Devarim, it was said a third time. So like three transmissions, so to speak, or repetitions, perhaps I should say. Uh, and so forth and so on. So this puts you right away when he says, in the middle of a whole big fight, how to interpret it. And it's always been a problem. Uh, in the Carbon Hour, in which I says, if you, those who are Lamdonim, so you'll check out the Carbon Hour. He's got page and pages on this because he goes through the whole subject exhaustively. And he has a very technical point of view in which he says, you know, that if there's something special over here, about Shemitah must be telling you the what's the unique characteristic of the Shemitah that we can apply to all the other mitzvahs. And it's a whole very technical discussion. Uh, it's something you need the Chavrusa to sit with. But let's leave that aside for a minute, especially for the purpose of this podcast. Now let's just take a look at the at the basics, how this has been received, particularly in the Middle Ages. <coughs> the Ibn Ezra, very fascinatingly, says that you have to understand when it comes to the Chumash, Hashem is not only the author, in the sense that he dictates to Moshe what to write, but God is also the editor. <clears throat> what an editor does is he arranges the chapters in different ways. And it has nothing necessarily to do with the exact historical chronology of the matters. <clears throat> I'm going to use an example that comes to mind. Maybe I shouldn't. You know, let's say, Elif Havda, Elif Halofim, and all that. Sometimes I make a movie, and what they'll do for convenience sake is, the script is already there, and what they'll do is they'll film the last part first, and another part second, and the middle part another time, and so forth and so on. And at the end, whoever is in charge in Hollywood of putting it all together will arrange it in sequence so that you, the viewer, read the first, see the first part first, the second part second, third part third. But if you want to get down nitty-gritty historical chronological reality, you'll see that the last part was actually filmed in January, and the first part was filmed in February, the third part was filmed in March, so to speak. Doesn't matter to you, because you're just watching the movie. It happens in book uh, uh, publishing also. Sometimes a writer, for whatever reason, will write this chapter first, or that chapter, and so on and so forth, even in dissertations and whatever. So, there's a writing process, or historically accurate writing process, and then there's the editing process, which you move things around. So Ibn Ezra says that not only does God, the author, in the sense of dictating the Chumash, 
But he also edited the material that you and I have when the Chumash by moving stuff around to different places. Dehainu. Um, when it comes to uh, this stuff that we have today in Har Sinai, meaning in Parshas Bahar about the, let's say, the Shemitah, where it says, Sheishonim Tizra Sardecha, Sheishonim Tizmar Karmecha, etc. So, in point of actual fact, this was said, the Ibn Ezra asserts, back in, in, um, in Mishpatim. I don't know if you remember, but in, back in Shmos, assuming that we know when Mishpatim took place, because, you know, there was it before this, after this, there's different opinions, but let's say Shmos. That's the time of the Maimon Hasinai. So one of the things it says over there, among all the other varied laws that you find in the book of Mishpatim, you know, and this, that, and the other, one of them is, Those two pesukim in chapter 23. Right? So that's the Shemitah. That's the Shemitah. Zakti ben Ezra. Really, it should go like this. Listen, I'll say it again. And then the Pasik says like this. And the whole rest of the text that we have in, um, in Bahar. You understand? No, that's where that's where it was actually pronounced. That's where it was pronounced. All the stuff we have in Parsha Bahar historically was said back in the time of Parsha Mishpatim. But Hashem told Moshe, "I want you to take those sukkim and stick them over here at the end of Vayikra for 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 whatever reason." Right? So it's out of order in the sense of chronology. Now, it's not out of order, because the editor can do whatever he wants. The editor is presenting you the book, or the text that he wants you to see. You understand? Uh, the editor is is, is, is is doing that, and uh, that's what we have. And if Hashem is the editor, okay, fine, shut up, you know, great. Why, why would God do that? No, it's why would you move it around? David Ezra has a very good spark. He says, pretty good spark. He said, this around the time, because really, 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 this should come before Kedoshan. I'll tell you what I mean. You have uh, Achimos, uh, how's it go? Achimos, no, both of them have the stuff about the Arias, right? They have the stuff about the Arias. Let's, uh, Achimos and Kedoshan, right. It should, it should, in other words, it should come after that, not after after Emor. Um, what are we? All the sexual stuff. What is the characteristic of these Arias? They're biggies. You can lose Israel because of that. They have all kind of avers out there, and uh, you know, there's various sorts of sins. Some have heavier consequences than others. I'm talking about what we're told by Farish. You know, if a guy doesn't make a sukkah, that's bad. But it doesn't mean that you lose Israel on account of it. If a guy says Lashon Hara, the Chavetz Chaim will get angry at this. It doesn't say you lose Israel. Although, actually, you, there you can make a case that it does. But you know what I'm saying. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all kind of sins out there. 
doesn't say for eating a ham sandwich, the land will kick you out. But if you violate the Arias, all the incest and all that other business, Bataki Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael cannot tolerate that. If you do, Kamais Eretz Mitzrayim, Kamais Eretz Kanan, Bataki Eretz Yisrael, it has large consequences territorially, you'll lose Israel. So, which sins are there that it says specifically that this sin is of such a nature that if you mess up, you lose Israel? Shemit and Yovel are one of them. Right? In the Tocha and all the rest of it, it says, oh, it's and so forth. It's a biggie. So the Ben Ezra, it's very logical, says that even though it was said back in the time of Shpatim, but God like lifted that out and said, we're going to put it, the text of the Chumash, more or less together with the uh, other things that cause you to lose Israel. Okay? All the other things that cause you to lose Israel. Which is, uh, you know, kind, kind, kind of interesting. Right? As he said, That originally it was all said back in Mishpatim. But the reason that the um, text of the Chumash has it over here, or God said to put it over here, to be mechaber, to, to connect it, juxtapose it, to the tenoe ha'aretz, to the kind of sins upon which there, it's like a tenai for it to hold their to straws, you don't do those sins. Ki kashir amal arayas, ki bavorm tukos since it's said explicitly by the arayas that it can cause the land to kick you out, can or bapashas kukosai. It's a very interesting problem, of course, as I said before, it never quite fits the details because it really should have been together back in Pasha's Kedosha. But what I found interesting is the Ibn Ezra has no problem pointing our attention to the fact that the Chumash you see now is a final product. You ordered a sandwich with this, that, and the other. You weren't in the kitchen when the sandwich was put together. You see what it is by the time it comes out. And an intelligent analysis of the text shows you that the stuff was done in making the sandwich. In this case, whole, whole parts of Shmos were taken out and lifted and put in what we call Vayikra to make this happen. So there's a history of the text of the Chumash itself. And it's a from thing. This is not an unfrum thing, right? This is coming from a from perspective. Okay? That's just interesting. Uh, the reason I mention is a lot of biblical criticism, and this is where Hoffman comes in, is based on the idea that things are out of order or not where they should be, all the rest of it. Did Ben Ezra tell you, you know something? I remember this, he said, you know, uh, Hashem, for various reasons, moves stuff around. So don't be surprised if you, the reader, see something which, from a Bible criticism perspective, seems like it's the wrong time, wrong place, all the rest of it. Maybe there's a reason it's there. The Chachila, in other when the Chumash was originally given, stuff that was happening one time is put in another time, not, not because they were uh, dumb and anachronistic, but there's a reason for it. I think it's a very, very interesting um, Ibn Ezra. However, there's an equally interesting, maybe more interesting, Ramban. Famous Ramban. Uh, those who are interested, I always say like this, you can read the Ramban inside, and I'll show you in a second, but for the average person out there, and I don't mean to be funny, but I'm serious, best thing to do is, is everybody should have a barbanel. He, he condenses everything for you. You know what I'm saying? He condenses everything for you. But the barbanel, I'm sorry, the Ramban, which is explained to Barbara, but you can see it inside, doesn't matter. It says something very, very interesting also. Because both of these are historical. They're saying the Torah is not timeless. The Torah has a timeless value. 
But the Torah itself was given in a timely fashion. That doesn't mean it's only bound to that time. I mean, that's a mistake with that approach. But there's a there's a timely aspect to it. And what he means is like this. You know, you read the story. The Jews left Egypt. They should have gone to Israel three days. Or for various reasons, they didn't happen. Took them seven weeks to get... That's the time we're in right now. Right now, it's real summer. They eventually got to Arsene, got the Ten Commandments. Uh, things didn't turn out exactly the way it was supposed to be. Suppose they would have said, and not make a golden calf. You could have skipped like most of our midbar. You know what I mean? They would have been in Israel in 10 minutes. And what would the Torah look like then? In what form would the Pesukim appear? It's just very interesting to contemplate that. You understand? Uh, did God make adjustments for the screw-ups of the Jews? Number one says, yeah, darn right. And what he says is like this. There's the uh, the first uh, covenant, the first bris, the second and the third. It's a very interesting idea. When, um, when you have to go back through the history. They leave Egypt, they get to Harsina eventually, they say Nasim Nishma, and then what happens? Then they mess it up because 40 days later they make the golden calf. And when that Moshe shattered the tablets. Ramban says, when they shattered the tablets, that was the end of that whole bris. You understand? They had to start all over again. It's not that they had to rescue the original bris. They had to start all over again. I'll read you the words. Lafit Daiti, just Ramban talking. That historically, not like Ibn Ezra, this is not lifted out of when it says Baharsin anymore, when he talks about the fact that Hashem spoke about the parsha of um, you know, uh and everything, this week's parsha Harsinai, it's not lifted out of the wrong place. It happened the way it's recorded. The reason is the following. That when it says Hashem told Moshe this and that and the other, it's when Moshe went up the second time to get the tablets the second time. The first were already shattered. So in other words, if you recall, as I said 10,000 times, the first 40 days culminated in making the golden calf and shattering the, the, the luchos. Luchos we shown us. Then he took another 40 days to calm God down not to kill the Jews. And that took you up to Rosh Chodesh And then came the third 40 days from Rosh Chodesh to Yom Kippur when they finally got the Lukashnias. So that th- third time is also called Bahar Sina, but it's a different nature. First time Moshe went up to Harsina, everything was nicey-nicey and all flowery and Nasvanishma and so forth, right? All that is true. This time, however... Uh, Moshe is is uh, you know more chaste and um, uh, aware that they had messed things up. It's the Luchoshnias, and that's why Hashem tells him the Shemitah thing. And I'll tell you why I think that happened. But I want to read you the words of Rambad. This is when he went up the Kabbal Luchoshnias, Ubiyarinim, Kibetchilas Arbaim Yom Rishonos Shaluchos Rishonos. The first forty days, Kosa Moshe b'Sefer Abris Derechem Mishpatamila, Vayizruk Dam Al Abris Adam. So the way he reads it is. They already had like the first version of the Torah, the Sefer Abris, as it was called. And that's when they had the ceremony where they sprinkled the blood and people said, Nasim Nishma, and so forth. But then when they messed up and made the Egel and they shattered the, the, the tablets, listen to this. 
Now, I can just see if I had Rabbi Kalevsky, he said, what do you mean, Ke'ilu, you know? <laughs> There's what to mean, Medayik, there. Oh, one second. Ke'ilu, Nisbatla, Brisa, If you want a good vort, you uh, synagogue rabbis out there, you're looking for something to talk about for Shavuos, this is a nice Ramban to zero in on. All right? I say, uh, all the guys in, um, uh, sponsoring everybody else, but that's, this is a if for your Shavuos uh, concentration, this is a very nice Ramban. But anyway, let's take him as he says it. So once they messed up, uh, so Shavuos was killed, so to speak, killing his bottle of a briefcase of and the Torah was over. And therefore, when God finally gave him the second tablet, which was on Yom Kippur, uh, is the second bris. So notice the first Shavuot's business was a failure, and the second one, the Yom Kippur, was a success. Which is applied to the second tablets. So I'm making a new bris. Okay? So basically, there was a contract. The contract uh, was broken, and they had to make a new contract. And on that occasion, Hashem repeated what you find in Mishpatim, meaning, over the course of the rest of the Chumash, you'll find again a lot of times the stuff you find in Mishpatim. But it's said now as part of a new context, a second, uh, 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 a bris. Okay? Uh, now, uh, are they identical? Do you find what was said in Mishpatim, which after all was said by the first time, simply repeated word for word later on? No, you do not. Why not? So Ramban says something really great. So God said like this, I'm going to give you, I'll try again, we'll do the contract again. But this time the contract is going to have a lot of penalty clauses. <laughs> Get it? This time it's going to be tougher. It's going to include a, a, a tochacha. It's going to include all kind of imprecations and a lot of threats. You do this, you lose Israel. You do that, you lose Israel. You know why? Because you have a bad record. You broke the contract the first time. Therefore, if I'm going to go into court and get it done again, I'm going to load in a lot of penalty clauses and things like that. I'll call him It should be a repetition of the stuff that was given in the first contract. That's why it says, Okay, that's true. That's why it says over here, Meaning, are now said in this one. So basically, what you have to see is um, that when it says Bahar Sinai, talking about Har Sinai round two. Now the Ramban goes on a great length, and I want to tell you over here uh, a shortened version of it because of time, which I see is interestingly presented, in my opinion, in um, in the Kitzar Barbanel. I have a very nice edition of Barbanel, the new one. And has at the bottom something called Kitsar Barbano, which is a saver somebody wrote long ago. And I'll just get right to it. He say, in the Kitsar Barbano, he says, He named Moshe Rabbeinu Kibble Baharsina Kolprati Amitsis. That Moshe, this is uh, the Barbano's way of uh, explaining the Ramban. Uh, he named Moshe Rabbeinu Kibble Baharsina Kolprati Amitsis. 
Moshe got all the stuff in Harsina. Avololi made Yisrael Kulmbavasachas, but it didn't all happen at one time because stuff intervened. So all the stuff that you find in Vayikra elsewhere would have been told by Moshe. He never got around to it. This is very good for it. Hashem told Moshe during the first 40 days up there, 40 days and 40 nights, all this stuff. So you say, well, then Moshe came down and taught it to Kal Yisrael. No, he didn't. What do you mean? I thought Zosa Teresha saw Moshe neither. Wait a minute, buddy. How could he teach it to Kal Yisrael? He came down. He saw the Egel Zov. He broke the tablets. He cussed out the Jews. Then he had to go up right away for another 40 days and another 40 days. So he didn't teach anybody anything. <laughs> right? Whatever his plans were, maybe when it was coming down with those first two tablets, maybe he had a whole plans. He'll start with Arachayim and then get to Ebenezer and so forth and so on. Fine. It did not happen that way. He didn't have any time. As we all know the story, he broke the tablets, he cussed out the Jews, he punished the, the guys who made the golden calf. Then he had to go right back up the mountain and pray 40 days that God should wipe him out. And when he finished that, he had to go up another 40 days until he called in Yom Kippur. After that, after he got the second tablets, then he came down and taught everybody. All the the, the, the clothes and the product. You see? So in those, lowly middle East roll kum basachas, kibitchila shiber haluchos, binasah bekaparsis roll, bekibaluchas ashneas. So it took him 80 days, you know, to do all that. But see, my said Mishkin Karbonoso. And even then, he didn't have any time to teach him everything. Because the minute he got the second tablets, he immediately said like this All right, project number one is the Mishkan. And that's what we got to concentrate on for now. So in other words, what you and I call Mishkan stuff takes up so much time, meaning before he got around to Orachayim, Chosha Mishpat, Ebenezer, all the rest of it, he had to cut him. <laughs> Tyrus. Why? The first thing he had to do was set up a Mishkan. Then once he set up a Mishkan, he had to teach the people how to not mess up the Mishkan, what the Kohanim should do, what they should not do, what a Zor should do, what should not do, what kind of carbonus they do, what the Shechita process should be, the whole nine yards. Now that he got involved in technical stuff before he go around to the other stuff. And then he had to warn you understand? Know These are all like Bavorni. He had to say, okay, now I told you not to mess up the Mishkan and the Kachim, all the rest of them. By the way, don't mess up the Arayas thing, because even if you get the base of Migdash right, the Arayas can take you down. You see? Uh, and Avodazar can take you down. Kadeshi is Kachim, Boyle Mishkan Hashem. Vodim Shabbesi Beseil Otokir Sischem. And then he had to teach Migdash. And anyway, then he, when all this is over, then he gets around to the Shemitah and the Oval, Bahar Sinai, and all the rest of it. So, um, it's a little more complicated than I'm saying, but what's really great, in my opinion, is, and you should read the Ramban inside of it, I can't do it all for you, it's long, but I hope I've whetted your appetite to take a look at this uh, Ramban, because what he's basically saying uh, is, as I understand it, uh, you better take care of uh, the Shemitah and stuff like that now, because I see you guys have issues. The Klai Yisrael. We see Fenegel Azov. Uh, you have these demons within you, so to speak, Yitzhahara. And therefore, the, 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 the Shabbos art is going to be a big thing. Uh, 
Because if you don't have Shabbos or Oretz, you're going to think you own the land, you can do what you want with the land, and all that kind of business, and then it'll lead you down to a golden calf again. Uh, he was right. <laughs> don't need me to say it. Because we know, we're told, in our Messiah, that the Jews ended up not keeping the Shemitah. Not keeping the Oval. And it took them down. Because it's not simply Hashem needs you to rest the land. The symbolism of resting in the land is, I don't own it all. You know, I'm, I'm a tenant farmer for Hashem and the landlords. A peasant in Europe knows he's not the owner of the land. There's somebody above him. He's got to pay him the taxes and all the rest of it. And uh, he's glad that he that they that the overlord lets him use the land to support his family. And if the overlord, the the nobleman, is a schmo, as usually happened in European history, for example, then he'll charge him ninety percent of his income in, in taxes. You know, I remember it's a famous figure that the French Revolution broke out in seventeen eighty nine. The French peasants were really getting screwed over and really were suffering. Listen to this. The French peasant, before the revolution, between the tax he paid to the king, the church, the noble, and all the rest of it, 87% of his income. That's why they were skinny and starving. 87% of his income. So if I was a peasant, and let's say, for example, I grew, uh, for argument's sake, 100 uh, uh, bushels of apples a year, 87 of those went to the taxes between the king, the church, and the uh, and the nobles. So how can I live in a family? How can I support a family with 13, 13 bushels a year? You know, 13% of what I make. Now, by the way, when the French Revolution was done, this is just interesting. Historically, it was the other way around. You know, they reformed the system, and so the French peasants got to keep everything but 13%. He got 87% of what he made, 13% went for the government. That's already a different story. You see? Well, guess what? The Torah is like that. If you work it out, I'm talking about what the Torah says. Between your miser and your this and that, the other, it's, you know, it's roughly, I mean, without, you know, getting technical, technically speaking, you know, you keep the overwhelming more. God is a benevolent landlord, let's put it that way. And that's what the Shemitah is supposed to bring out. Hashem is not one of these things where it says like this, oh, I want 90% of what you made. I want 80% of what you made, you know, something like that. Because then you are really being crushed. It's the other way around. Hashem is very, a mild landlord. He only wants a small amount of taxes. Uh, you know, between the, the, the Meister and the Truma and a couple of Carbonas here and there and the other, there is a price. A couple of, but overall, you get to keep most of what you, of what you produce. Uh, you, that can lead to a sense of entitlement and a kochi or it can lead to a person being properly grateful. Like you do in the, um, what do you call it, that ceremony uh, in, in Kisava, where you bring the Bikurim. The guy said, listen, you know, since you're such a nice landlord, I'm happy to bring the first fruits and stuff like that as expression of the gratitude because you provide me with the rain. You provide me with the other stuff I need for the farm to go. Obviously, nothing would work if Hashem don't want it to work. So I, I just want to show you as a sign of being a grateful for, for for mild conditions. One of the ways is Shabbos arts. Uh, when the Jews did not do that, they were you know that led to a mindset which took them down. 
So anyway, I just wanted to say over here that when you look at Parsha Bahar, especially in the beginning, uh, it's very interesting from historic perspective because it forces the thinking reader to consider the actual historical reality process of how the Torah was given, mamish. And it's just interesting, the idea of the first bris, a second bris, what was included in Shmos, what was included in Vayikra. Would they even need Vayikra, let's say, for example, had they not messed up with the golden calf and and, and, and would they need a Mishkan? Uh, how would Shabbos artists fit in uh, you know, if if they had uh, never made a golden calf in the first place. Of course, that it would fit in, according to the lines I just said. So, um, the tone of Ayikra, especially the tone of Baharim B'chuk Kosai, and later on in, in, in Dvarim, when Moshe really gives a Musa again, 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 is based on the fact you broke the first contract. Therefore, we have to put in extra clauses in the second contract. I think it's a very rich and interesting idea. And as they say before, it does devalue shuos to a certain degree, but I'll I'll, I'll leave that for now and save it uh, for the future. Anyway, once again, I want to thank the Glucks for sponsoring uh, Parsha and uh, wish everybody a good week and a good Lag Bomber coming up. If I opportunity, I'll say something about Lag Bomber. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.